Running the option on first down. Hagan has it. He has Rome. He's got one man to beat. Now he pitches to Flanagan, and he may take it all the way. Flanagan's in for the touchdown. McKinley Wright from the logo. Got it. Oh, McKinley Wright. Breaks a tackle. Welcome into the DNVR Buffs podcast presented by Drift Car Sharing. I'm your host, Henry Chisholm. And before we talk more about the Buffs today, I want to tell you a little bit about Drift Car Sharing, an awesome new service that you can take advantage of here in Colorado. If you drop your car off at Denver International Airport, likely because you're catching a flight, taking a trip, you know, doing whatever you're doing, instead of paying for parking, let Drift Car Sharing rent out your car and then you can make some money instead of paying money to park your car up there. Uh, the The car will be insured by all states. So you don't have to worry about anything bad happening when somebody rents out your car. And even if they can't rent your car out to anybody, they will still clean your car for you. And that's a pretty great deal. And at the very least, you're getting a clean car and you might be getting a couple bucks too instead of spending any money. That's an awesome deal that I'm excited to check out. We'll see how it goes. Also, uh, if if you're trying to rent a car, if you're coming into Denver or really anywhere else, they're trying this in a bunch of different cities. So uh, you'll, you'll have options if you're traveling. You can check this out. A uh, couple cool features. One is that there's no under 25 fee which means that if you are somebody like me who is under 25, then you don't have to pay like the 25 bucks a day or 50 bucks a day to rent a car that you usually do from rental agencies. It'll be cheaper, it'll be easier, and it's just a pretty great deal. Uh, if, if you want more info, you can go to drivedrift.com and get it all figured out. It, it seems like an awesome service, and I'm excited to check it out. Okay. Uh, time to talk some buffs. Today is Monday, but it's actually kind of a Tuesday, at least in buffs world, because the buffs don't play on Saturday this week. They play in Eugene, Oregon, Friday night to take on the Oregon Ducks, and that bumps everything up a week. There's a, a lot of things that change when you lose a day of practice. You know, Mel Tucker was saying today that Usually on Sundays, they go through and they just kind of talk about what went wrong and what went right during the previous week's game. That changes. They have to rush through all of that stuff, pick up all the key points, and then start implementing their game plan for Oregon on Sunday. That's a quick turnaround. It can be a little bit overwhelming. You don't really get a chance to breathe. We'll see how it goes. Um... It's tough, but obviously Oregon's going through the same thing. They played Cal this weekend. They beat Cal this weekend in a game that was a lot closer than I, I know I expected, and I think a lot of other people expected too. It's a good sign. 
it's a good sign for sure. It means that the Buffs might have a bit better of a chance than you'd expect. I think right now the line on the game is Oregon favored by 20 and a half or so. So, I mean, a win, not going to be easy. Really not going to be easy. Uh, one of the other ways that the short week could really hamper the Buffs this weekend is that it's one less day for guys to recover. You know, Aaron Maddox is back out on the field practicing. Who knows when he's going to be ready to go, but he's a starting safety. Uh, Mikhail Onu was able to sneak back onto the field for the last couple snaps, but he didn't really look like himself. Maybe he's going to be able to return your other starting safety. Um, who else you have? So that's it for the back end. And then up front, Mustafa Johnson has the high ankle sp- uh, sprain. I think they said he could be out one more game. Or no, he could be back this week. He could be out a few more weeks. Uh, we really don't know. Kind of depends on how he progresses. LaVisca Chenault, Katie Nixon, a lot of these guys, Mel said, are just going to be game time decisions. They really don't know yet whether they'll be good to go on Saturday. But or when I say Saturday, I mean Friday. And that's the point of this whole thing is that it's one less day for them to recover and get ready. Because Mel did say that they aren't going to know they're ready unless they can see them play and show that they're ready, show that they know what they're doing in practice. So hopefully they'll be good to go. Hopefully they'll get a bunch of these guys back because they're going to need them if they're going to beat Oregon. Uh, short, wait, short week is tough. M- Mel also said that he was a part of a pretty tough stretch when he was the interim coach of the Jaguars, something like Monday night game, Sunday game, Thursday game, or something like that. Uh, it was like a three-week, short week thing that was going on there. So... You know, that's the way the world works. Uh, Sometimes you have weeks like this. uh, Maybe it adds just a little more variation to what happens Friday night. And, you know, when you're not favored, when you're the underdog, the the more unpredictability, the more of these awkward circumstances you can throw in, the, the more that is going to give you a better shot. So... Who knows who's going to respond to this? Who knows how Friday night's going to go? But it's a tough start. It's a tough start for both teams. Uh, Mel also said that he was pretty happy with how Steven Montez played. He thought that Steven had a very good game. Uh, I tend to agree. We talked about this a little bit yesterday on the reaction pod. I, I was impressed by Steven. I think he did his job. You just need more guys to do their own job. Uh, he also said that the the big problems still are the big plays. And I think that that's pretty obvious to everybody, that that still is the problem defensively. Um, you know, saw it again. <laughs> saw it again. And they're trying to cut those down. It's going to be even tougher. You know, Sam Neuer was back there. He's your... Tra- he used, He was a quarterback up until a month and a half ago. And then you have Isaiah Lewis who was listed behind Sam Neuer. You know, it's it's tough for those guys who, I mean, even, like not even to dig into talent. Obviously, you know, Mikhail Onu, Aaron Maddox, those are the guys who won the starting job and they won the starting jobs for a reason because they are very talented. But even without talking about the talent disparity between these guys, just not having the reps back there, just, you know, going back there like this is the first game because if they played like they did or Saturday in the first game of the season against Colorado State, they might not have looked quite so overmatched. They they might have looked 
like they fit in just a little bit better, but since they haven't been getting those in-game reps, they still are a little bit behind everybody else. And that that makes it tough, especially when, you know, they the Buffs didn't know that those guys were necessarily going to play as much as they did because that would have changed how they prepared all week. Um, and it's just tough when you lose a bunch of guys in a game. Everything changes. Everybody starts filling into different roles than they expected to play, whether you're playing the same position but getting more snaps there, whether you're trying to move around to patch up a hole at another position. It's just really difficult. And, I mean, I, I can't imagine what would happen to this team if they did lose really anybody else. Hopefully hopefully a bunch of these guys will be ready to go on Friday night. Um, but if they're not and you lose one or two guys, if you I mean, knock on wood, obviously, but you lose another defensive lineman, you lose a linebacker, corner, like they just do not have the bodies to, to hold up. You know, I, I think it's really easy to look at that game on Friday or on Saturday and say the defense took a step back, but I don't know that I would. I might just say, like, throw it out. These guys were asked to do things that they hopefully won't be asked to do for the rest of the season, at least at half of the positions at any given time, and that makes things just too difficult to overcome. Uh, it's tough. It's tough, but... You know, that's something that we're, we're still going to be a story, even with everybody back. Can they stop the big plays? Because they look pretty good outside of the big plays. And I have a story kind of like that coming pretty soon. Mel gave us some insights into some of the goals that they have week in and week out. You know, yards per carry, yards per rushing attempt, uh, just target numbers where they feel that they can control a game if they hit those target numbers defensively. Uh I think it's pretty interesting stuff. And, you know, one of the key points was they hit they hit those numbers outside of the big plays. If you just take off whatever couple of massive mistakes they made, then they actually had another really good defensive performance. But that's just not how it works. Uh, you just got to cut those out. You got to find a way to do it. And, again, this week, that is what they're trying to do. Offensively, um, offensively, it's similar it's still just cutting mistakes out. And this week, the mistakes were penalties. Uh, I think it was something like eight penalties for 70 yards, 80 yards, something like that. And they gave up, or the other team, Arizona, had one penalty for five yards. That big of a gap is going to make it really hard to win football games. And it did. They didn't win that football game, and that's a big reason why. It was stalling out drives. You know, there was the the drive where they had the ball moving, and Casey Roddick gets called for the unnecessary roughness, and then Arlington Hambright gets called for the holding, and then all of a sudden they're 20 yards, 30 yards away from where they're trying to go, and there's just no chance. That stuff needs to be cleaned up. It was an issue early on in the season, but the penalties have consistently declined up until Saturday. Um, and Mel was asked about it. Mel said, you know, I'm, nothing surprises me. He was asked if he was surprised. He said, nothing surprises me. That's one of those things that can just happen, uh, and we're going to do what we can to cut it down. And I think that that kind of is the right response. Even even a good football team, there's going to be a week when the penalties just jump up. You know, that's that's kind of the nature of penalties. If if it's consistent week to week, you're then then that's when you have deeper organizational issues that need to be resolved. But if it's just one week, it flares up. That's something that happens to teams. All, all across the country, you just have to figure out how to 
not let it happen again. Figure out what was behind it because they're all just little fluky plays. And sometimes you just have a bunch of those little fluky plays in one game. Try not to, though. You definitely try not to. Uh, those are some of the big takeaways this morning. Uh, didn't get a chance. You know, uh, I was going to talk to a receiver, but he ended up getting pulled into an extra lift or an earlier lift or something when I was going to talk to him. So hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to him tomorrow, which will actually be the last media availability of the week until after the football game, because not only does the football team schedule shift up a day, the media schedule also shifts up a day. So uh, that's kind of where we stand right now there. Uh, We should mention, though, that the Buff soccer team lost on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, to Oregon State. Good team receiving votes. or Not the Grizzlies. I'm so used to Montana. Uh, Colorado was controlling the game most of the way through. The shots were something like 26 to 7 or something like that. Um, But the Oregon State got a couple of theirs to go in, ended up winning 2-1. Buffs had a couple good chances late to tie it, send it overtime, just didn't fall. Again, they looked like the the better team for sure. If if you weren't counting goals, which would be a weird thing to do at a soccer game, but if you weren't counting goals and it was like a boxing match, you would say, yeah, Colorado won that game and it'd be a unanimous decision. But that's the weird thing about soccer is sometimes you get those fluky results there too. Um, the good news, I think, is that you know, there, there's a bigger tournament. It's not like college football where you have to be one of the top four teams to make it the college football playoff. If that's your goal, if your goal is the Pac-12 title, you have to play really well during the regular season to get into the Pac-12 title game. That's not how soccer works. They have the bigger tournament. It's closer to the way basketball works. So you, you can drop a couple games. You mostly just have to get in and then play well. Be nice to host just a little bit of the tournament. Be nice to play some weaker opponents early on. But as long as they keep playing the way they're playing, they're going to score enough goals and play good enough defense to get into the tournament. And then you just have to get hot. And they're a team that's definitely capable of doing that. Uh, Disappointing results for sure. Then they're on the road to California this weekend playing California schools. Always scary because those are the powerhouses. But uh, that's where they're at because we've been following along with them too. Uh, Before we move on to the second segment... I want to talk about uh, Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer of BSN Denver. Uh, Breckenridge Brewery is pretty much the best. I was down at Blake Street Tavern last night. We love Blake Street Tavern as well. I think I'll be back there recording the show tomorrow, Tuesday. Yeah, I'll probably stop there on my way back from Boulder, tape the show at Blake Street Tavern, uh, eat some food, maybe drink a Breckenridge beer, and it'll be a blast. But, uh... Yeah, Breckenridge, we've talked about all the beers. Last night I had the Autumn Ale, which is the special of the month, I think, at uh, Blake Street Tavern, which means it's like a dollar off, two dollars off. It's a good beer. I suggest that one as well. Um, Yeah, you know how much I like those, and hopefully you guys are trying them too. If you haven't, then you should check out the beer locator on their website because then you can pick whichever beer you want to try and they will tell you where you can buy it. And they're, I think they're in 36 states now. So even if you aren't in Colorado, and I know actually a lot of you aren't, then you still have a chance to check them out, and you will not be disappointed. Uh, also want to tell you about Denver Rubber Company, 
because if you need custom die cut gaskets or molded rubber, uh, if you are trying to get like custom hoses, cust- custom contract manufacturing, I'm not sure if that's a product. I am not good at this read because you know I drink I drink a lot of beer. I don't buy a lot of rubber. Um, but Denver Rubber Company is a local company, obviously uh, one of our favorite partners uh, since. 1972 they've provided some of the best quality of products uh denver rubber company also like it's they can produce things for all sorts of different industries including pharmaceuticals construction um, medicine military stuff uh, electronics aerospace pretty much anything that you could need a large amount of custom rubber for they can get you covered so if that sounds like you you have a deadline, you need custom design, you need help picking out a material, then call Denver Rubber Company at 1-800-259-0010 or you can visit them at drcfirst.com and tell them that we sent you, which because that's how they know that we're helping. Okay, uh, back in to the podcast now and I want to talk some recruiting notes so, uh, news over the weekend, tight end Brendan Passareo, he's a three-star tight end out of California from Palo Alto. He visited Colorado over the weekend for the Arizona game, obviously, and the the Buffs actually got his commitment. He probably isn't one of like the big names in this class, but... He is a six foot five, two hundred and forty pound tight end who Darren Shiverini recruited, and so I mean, kind of trust him at this point to know what he's talking about. And obviously, very big, tough to bring down. Could be fun. He'll be he's he's this year's class, so he'll be on campus next fall. Probably red shirts. Still pretty exciting stuff. Also, our guy Brendan Rice, the receiver who we've talked a lot about. Uh, I believe he's. he said he's going to announce his commitment sometime this week. All the trends are still shifting in Colorado's favor, which is really exciting. So, I mean, hopefully they're right. Hopefully Brendan Rice is going to be a buff next season. There's, I mean, obviously you, you look through the receivers they have now with LaVisca Chenault, Katie Nixon, Tony Brown, and then behind them you have Dimitri Stanley. And you have Daniel Arias and Jalen Jackson and Maurice Bell. And these names just keep going. Vontae Chenault, uh, Brandon Huffman-Dixon. You know, these are a bunch of guys who, even if, I mean, a couple of them are probably gone after this year, There, there's a bunch of talent behind them. And there's still more talent coming in with Brendan Rice, with Keith Miller III. It's, it's... It's what you want to see, I guess, that they're going to keep that a strength going forward uh, because, you know, receivers can win you a lot of games in college football. Okay, uh, before we get into questions, and we have a couple today, uh, I want to talk about what else happened around the Pac-12 this weekend because, obviously, it's really important that we stay up to date with that kind of stuff on this podcast. Um, here's the general takeaway. The Pac-12 is incredibly unpredictable. You know, it maybe maybe Oregon is the one team that you look at and say, well, 
you know, there's there's almost like I, I think I've been saying it's like a three tier conference, but at this point, it seems like only UCLA and Oregon State are in that bottom tier, and only Oregon is really in that top tier, um, and everybody else is just kind of in the middle. Anybody can beat anybody, and I mean that's pretty much what we saw this weekend. Um, let's start with Oregon because that's who the Buffs play this week and because that is kind of the team that we've all thought has been the number one. But they didn't really look like it against Cal. They still won. They won 17-7, to but it wasn't the kind of resounding victory that you would expect them to have. You know, Cal's a good team. They've been ranked at various points in the season. So, you know, they've they've they're solid they're solid but they aren't quite to the level that Oregon is supposed to be um at halftime Cal was up 7-0 Oregon's offense really couldn't get anything going uh it wasn't until the second half that they even got on the board but 10 points in the third seven points in the fourth and won 17 to 7 it's supposed to be a very explosive offense if, if that's the Oregon that the Buffs play this Friday and the Buffs are what they were even in the first half of this week's game, or I don't know, maybe maybe just in that Arizona State game, then it will be competitive. Uh, it just kind of depends on which Oregon shows up, which Colorado shows up, and that's kind of the story of the Pac-12. So Oregon beats Cal. Um, Oregon State beats UCLA. These two teams, they're supposed to be at the bottom. Oregon State gets its what, second in-conference victory of the last three years. They beat, or maybe over, over FBS opponents even. I don't know, some, something like that. A third against an FBS opponent. Um, Yeah, uh, beat UCLA 48-31. Who knows what you read into that. We've seen the highs of UCLA. We've seen the lows. They're probably pretty bad. Oregon State also down there. Shouldn't be a threat. Um, and then the final Pac-12 game that was played this weekend was Stanford and Washington. You know, Washington was supposed to be up there with Oregon, but they fell to Stanford 23-13, to and now all of a sudden, Washington is 1-2 in the conference. So, I mean, this is the Pac-12 cannibalizing itself all over again. Here's the good news, though. The good news is that Colorado still has a path to win the Pac-12 South. Like just because they did lose that game, by no means does that mean that it's over. It means that they're going to have to beat good football teams, but that's what you have to do to win a football conference is beat good football teams. Uh, Colorado, I think that they can beat anybody in this conference. You know, the, the one team that you kind of question that is Oregon. And, you know, they, look, they looked weak last week, but there is a reason that they're favored by 20 points. Um... Right now, Arizona is the only undefeated team in the Pac-12 South. They play Washington this week. You know, Washington, like I said, didn't look all that special last week. But, I mean, they should still be able to beat Arizona. Uh, just like the Buffs should have been able to beat Arizona. Uh, and behind them, USC is 2-1, and one, but they play Notre Dame, a non-conference game. Arizona State, 1-1. One and one. Utah, 1-1. One and one. Colorado, 1-1. One and one. UCLA one and two. It's wide open. Uh, Arizona is going to have the same number of losses, 
as everybody else but UCLA. And UCLA was never supposed to be the threat here anyway. Uh, it's going to be a battle. The The winner of the Pac-12 South may not come out with a super shiny record, but... You know, Colorado, as we've said quite a few times, they have a tough path. They have a very tough path. They have to beat some combination of Oregon, uh, Washington, Washington State, uh, USC, Utah, UCLA they should have. You know, they, they do have very tough games on the schedule, but but by no means are they out of any of them. You know, Oregon is the toughest game on the schedule, I think, the rest of the way. Uh, so that's that's the good news, is that if they play well, they'll, they should be in that conversation. Who knows what to expect with this team, though, and that's kind of the big, big story of the season, is that Colorado, just like pretty much every other Pac-12 team, super unreliable, unpredictable, you better hope that it's because of the injuries that they did take a bit of a step back this week because most of them are short-term injuries. So they should be back to maybe not full strength. You know, they're still down a couple guys for a while. Chris Miller, starting cornerback, will be gone for the whole season. But it's not out of the question that they have everybody except for Jarek Broussard and Chris Miller back on the roster two weeks from now. I mean, maybe less than 50% chance, but I would guess it's right around there, to be honest. Uh, kind of depends, I guess, on Oregon, whether a couple more guys get banged up. But, you know, it's getting reps for some of these younger guys, and you just got to hope that they're sticking and so that they can win some games down the stretch. Sounds like a lot to say that they win whatever that would be, you know, five or six of their next seven. But... I mean, why why not? Why not? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the big point here is that, you know, I don't think USC is going to go undefeated the rest of the way in the conference. I don't think that about Utah or obviously Arizona, Arizona State. You don't have to be perfect to win the Pac-12 South. You just have to pull, pull out the games you can. Arizona loss really hurts, but it happens. Got to move on. Okay. Uh, before we move on to the final segment of today's show, responding to some of your guys' comments, uh, we're going to take just a quick break, and I'll be right back. What's up, guys? Ryan Konigsberg here, and I got to tell you about the Blake Street Tavern. It's my favorite sports bar in town, as evidenced by the fact that we had our fantasy draft there. It's where I watched Super Bowl 48. It's where I watched CU win a Pac-12 basketball championship back in the day. Uh, it's the place to be for any sporting event. It's the biggest bar in town. I always joke you could land a 747 in there. It was named the National Sports Bar of the Year in 2017 by Nightclub and Bar Magazine. It wins Best Sports Bar in Denver seemingly every year from Westward, anyone else that's voting. It's the place to be. Uh, they've got great specials, and the food is out of this world. I recommend the nachos, the green chili fries, uh, the buffalo chicken wrap, you name it, they've got it. And the location is perfect. Just two blocks north of Coors Field, and they have parking. So go check out the Blake Street Tavern. Okay, into the questions, uh, comments. Uh, most of these responding to the game. I think I think all three of them responding to the game this weekend. 
And there's some interesting takes. The first one comes in from Silver Buff, who says, With this many injuries, there has to be a cause. Most are muscle injuries that are directly related to training and conditioning. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's interesting. I think whenever you see a trend, I'd be interested to see how many guys for every team across the country are out at this point. I don't think, I mean, the, the tough part for Colorado right now is that you're down a lot of starters, a lot of stars. I mean, you could you could easily make the case that your two best weapons on offense, maybe your two most... Yeah, I mean, you could say your two best offensive players. I don't think you'd be too far off with LaVisca and KD. Maybe you throw Steven in that conversation, say KD, maybe Tony Brown. Obviously, LaVisca's the number one. But you could say the two best offensive players are out. Uh, and then on defense... You could say the same thing, uh, Mustafa Johnson and Mikhail Onu. I don't know that it's the number of injuries. I think that there might be a couple more than you would expect at this point, but I think they're just more noticeable because they are most of them, at least, to key players. It's not. It's not. You know, wow. I'm about to call somebody not a key player, but you know, it's not. Akil Jones or somebody rotating in on the defensive line or uh, Darian Rakestraw or Dimitri Stanley. You know, guys who are important to the team for sure and have served their role and have helped out and have often had to step up because other guys are hurt. Like, they're still valuable pieces of the team, but if they're missing, they're a little bit easier to replace than a guy like LaVisca Chenault or Mikhail Onu. Um so that's my take there. It seems like a pretty standard number of injuries. It is interesting, though, that a lot of them uh, do look like that kind of tweaked muscle type of thing. I don't think we've heard... We'll get an injury report tomorrow. Maybe that's a better time to actually dig into this and see what they are. Maybe there's a, something up with the training. Maybe they're not stretching correctly. I don't know. I don't know how any of that works. Odds are it's just a coincidence, but... I don't know. You never know. Conspiracy theories are fun. Uh, we do know it's like the core strain for LaVisca. We know that we have a couple ankle sprains. Uh, I don't know anything about Mikhail Onu. It did look more like that kind of... I mean, it wasn't like he got hit hard. Just kind of pulled up a little bit on that touchdown. Okay. Uh, he continues and says... Oh, this is where it starts. Okay. Anyone blaming Montez for the loss needs to go back to football 101. In points allowed, the Buffs are the 27th worst at 31.6 points per game. Meanwhile, the offense is 35th best at 34.6 points per game. I think that those are important stats. I agree that you know this offense is doing more than enough to beat any football team, at least in the Pac-12 South. And... You know, there's always room for more, but it's tough to say there are too many problems right now with the offense. You know, I guess I guess you could definitely point to the penalties this week. You could point to the inability to score in the red zone this week, or the inability to score touchdowns instead of field goals in the red zone. But, I mean, I feel like those are both just things that sometimes happen in football. You know, I, I don't... We could go back and look at the numbers, but I don't think that this has really been a trend that they've been stalled out there. I think they've actually done a pretty decent job of scoring touchdowns. just wasn't happening um, for whatever reason. 
I really am not worried about this offense at all. I think, uh, you know, they get their two, potentially their two best players back this week. And, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about them scoring on Oregon. I'm just worried about whether the defense can get any stops, any turnovers. Um, because that's that's how you, they will keep themselves in this game. You know, the offense is going to go out there and they're going to put up enough points, I think, to win. But I, I, I can't say that Oregon doesn't just put up incredible numbers, massive numbers on this defense. You'd hope that guys are back so that it works out. Uh, Sonny Rain responds and says, and I guess I'll be attending Football 101 for the thousandth time this year because, yes, I do blame Montez. Not for the loss because that was on everyone, but for not seizing the moment and taking victory at the end. Steven's unwillingness to run ensured that the final first down couldn't be gained. He ran out of the pocket on third down, and instead of running with the conviction needed to gain seven yards, he scratched or, or he ran scared, uh, stumbled, and ran out of bounds like the clock was running out. If Montez picks up three or four of the seven yards, we're talking about a far easier conversion attempt on fourth. It is what it is. Yeah, and I think that if you have uh, a complaint about Montez, it is exactly that. I think that there have been a lot of opportunities for him to run more, run harder. I think that they're kind of they're they're more noticeable. It's more noticeable when Steven Montez doesn't put his head down and pick up a first down because that's what Sefo Lufau did. That's what he did best. You know, he he could not throw half of the pa- okay, maybe that's not true. He couldn't throw a, f- a lot of the passes that Steven Montez throws. You know, that, that drop by Daniel Arias where he drops it in the bucket there, uh, the the long ball to Tony Brown. Cepho probably doesn't make those throws, but Cepho does pick up that first down because that's the type of player he is. You know, he's almost Tim Tebow-ish. You know, the, the runner, physical, maybe not the best athlete, but just had the the heart to do it. I don't know. But yeah. In those situations, you want to see Steven pick those up. I'm not really sure why he's holding back a little bit there. He does look scared. Um, Again, I can't even imagine how scared I would be in that situation. And I think that there's a good case to be made that he really should be protecting himself because, I mean, behind him, the buffs don't have many options. If, if something were to happen to Steven Montez, I think that that could tank the season a lot sooner than uh, anything else that could happen. So, yeah, that's kind of my take there. But obviously those late game situations, he's got to do what it takes to get that figured out. I think that out of bounds run, we must be thinking about the same one, but that out of bounds run, he could have gone upfield. Instead, he keeps bouncing it outside, bouncing it at the right. and And then when he gets the... Sideline takes two steps backwards to avoid contact. That's, I mean, I'm I'm happy with him not running so much. I, I know that he ran more earlier on. And when he did run earlier on in his career, he looked faster. Like somehow he's been getting slower over the last few years. I don't know. But I, I mean, at this point... I haven't seen enough of Steven Montez running to be really confident in it. When I see him run, I just kind of cringe a little bit and think like, oh, don't get hurt, don't get hurt, because he's still taking hits. He doesn't, 
he doesn't slide well. He I, I I don't know. I'm not high on Steven Montez as a runner. Uh at least I'm not as high as a lot of you are, I don't think. Uh I I would much rather see him run less than run more. Maybe if when he was running he did have that confidence, that thought like, you know what, I'm gonna take this hit, but I'm gonna pick up a couple more yards. Maybe that would kind of change my feeling there. Um, in those late game situations, again, obviously that's the point where it's like, do whatever it takes to win. Don't worry about whether you get hurt and maybe you don't get all the reps you need this week. We'll figure that out when we get there. First, you have to get this win. Earlier in the game, that's not the thought process. Earlier in the game, getting a, even if it's a touchdown, even if it's the difference between a touchdown and a field goal with, uh, in the first quarter, the risk of him getting hit and not being like himself that uh that's huge that's a lot scarier than dropping four points i think steven is a runner i don't know i i just don't see that as a strength for him at this point because he doesn't make great decisions with it at times uh i i I think we noted on the post game pod yesterday a time earlier in the game when he the pocket kind of split around him uh, near the goal line, and so he just charged up the middle, half brought himself down, like half gave himself up a few yards downfield, and took a hit as he was going down, and really didn't gain anything because they just kicked the field goal anyway. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to see Steven run more, but like you said, in those situations, you got to do what it takes to get there. Uh, Sunny Rain also said uh, that was a total team loss. For the first time this season, I didn't see the defense adjust after halftime. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there were adjustments. It's a lot harder to get those communicated with the young guys, though. Uh, and to be honest, I thought the adjustment was simple. Come out and see if after throwing all first half, Arizona would establish the run game. Uh, when they showed their hand and it was back to the air attack, time for the adjustment. Chuck the zone and play man. It was obvious that Tate didn't want to run or couldn't run as he wished to be able to. There is no need to play a zone with so many young players out there. Yeah, I I mean, I definitely see that. I definitely see how that could work. Um, Just to make sure we're all on the same page, you know, against a running quarterback, you typically don't play man because then everybody who's covering a receiver is just going downfield with the receiver with their back to the ball they don't see when the quarterback gets out and run runs um you know if if the offense sees that you're playing man sends everybody deep then all your defenders are either rushing the quarterback or sprinting downfield and if the quarterback can get free there's huge amounts of land to run through that's why against Khalil Tate you usually don't play man but if he hasn't shown an ability to beat you with his legs, you know, he was kind of, I think it was the hamstring injury that almost kept him out of the game, that kept him out of the game the week before. You know, I, I think that that does make sense because those zone schemes that the buffs run are very complicated. That's that's one of the reasons that they've had so much trouble this year, uh, giving up big plays because there are so many little pieces to be communicated you know, when when do you switch to man? There's some cover matching stuff uh, or route matching stuff where you, you cover a guy or you cover a zone 
up until you see him break his route off, and then all of a sudden you don't go deep and don't cover the deep third. You follow him, and the entire rest of the defense has to adjust to help fill that zone if somebody runs over there. There are all these little complicated nuances, passing players off, all this kind of stuff that's very difficult and complicated and takes some time to get locked in. Uh, you see why teams do it because, I mean, that cover or that uh, route matching cover three is what Nick Saban has made his name on. And, you know, we've talked a lot that uh, Mel Tucker comes from that scheme. He learns that scheme. There are a lot of those pieces in what he does. Uh, Bill Belichick does a lot of that. Uh, Georgia obviously does a lot of that. There are a bunch of very good defenses that use those same concepts and just throw really smart guys out there to do complex jobs that give you the best possible chance of stopping the offense. The problem is if guys don't know their jobs, then you're you're stuck. I do think that one of the reasons that they stick with their scheme instead of switching is that they want to continue to establish what they're doing. Um, maybe in games isn't the best time to be putting learning first, but the more time that these guys spend trying to do that stuff, the sooner it will all click. You know, this is complicated stuff. They usually, usually at this point, Nate Landman has been doing this job for four years now. He, he knows exactly what to do in this scheme because he's grown up in it. He's studied it. He's seen other players play it well. He's seen other players play it poorly. He's done it in practice for a while. But even he, this late in his career, is still learning. And that's true of all the seniors on the team, which isn't what you want, which is why you stick to it so that KJ Trujillo, when he is a junior or a senior, can say, hey, I've been doing this for a while. I know my job. I can help younger guys who are forced into the lineup with their jobs. It... It, it's a long-term project to get this whole defense installed and working properly. And maybe you'd like to see them ditch it when they realize that they have to play. But then you have to have to remember that you're also putting young guys, putting, depending on how you play it, you probably have, uh, if it's just like your standard cover two man, then you have, you, you have Delrick Abrams who played well, locking up their number one. You have KJ Trujillo on their number two. Um, you have the linebackers on their tight end and receiver uh, in one-on-one -on -one coverage. And back behind all of that, the guys making sure that they're covering for the mistakes of the others are Sam Neuer and Isaiah Lewis. You know, Sam Neuer, I think, can be a good safety. Probably not there yet. Uh, probably definitely not there yet. He was a quarterback just a month ago. Not the guy you want to be relying on stopping the big plays. Uh, and then Isaiah Lewis, young guy. Definitely a young guy. And again, is he the guy that you really want protecting people? You know, Nate Landman, John Van Deest, Akil Jones, they are not, they're not meant for one-on-one -on -one coverage like that is not their strength and so you're kind of protecting them as well by playing the zone scheme even though they were being beaten in it um, more often than not anyway so that's another reason you might not go man is because I, I think the only one-on-one -on -one matchup you're confident in is Delrick Delrick Abrams and the people making sure that it doesn't burn you 
it are are the safeties and those safeties are also very inexperienced so that's one reason you wouldn't switch to man uh, also because if you were to blitz out of the man then you have all those one-on-ones and the linebackers probably go with the quarterback and then your safeties are in one-on-ones it's n- neither of those off options really sound good the zone or the man because the zone was getting beat too obviously and it was getting beaten deep because the res- or because the safeties are uh, out of position whatever those deep balls are on the safeties um maybe you play man and just say well we'll have a cornerback and a safety back there anyway so maybe one of them can make the play it's i mean they're kind of just in a no win situation with that secondary their their coverage unit right now um yeah yeah i mean i still i still would have liked to see a little more of it for sure just because it would be a different look it would change things up but the combination of trusting those guys and those one-on-ones with the l- lessened help over the top and giving the running lanes to Khalil Tate, you know, that's scary. Plus, I mean, you, you go back, you remember that they actually got a couple stops. Uh, the defense didn't look terrible outside the big plays, which is what Mel Tucker said, and obviously that's a huge massive caveat to say like outside of the 75 yard touchdown the 33 yard touchdown and whatever else went on the buffs defense actually pretty good but let's see i'm trying to find that a uh, drive chart uh okay one second i got oh no there it is yeah so arizona's drives punt touchdown punt punt interception touchdown halftime touchdown punt punt touchdown you know it's not like they were just tearing the defense up buffs got some stops oh oh there's more oh then they got another touchdown so that makes it a little bit worse but yeah in the first half punt touchdown punt punt interception touchdown half you gave up 14 points in the first half the defense looked like it's it knew what it was doing i mean you maybe don't even need to adjust all that much from that you know you just stick with it and keep it working it's just when things got ugly in the second half uh that especially late in the second half um, that you want to tweak something, try a couple different calls. And at that point it's tough to implement. Okay. Uh, That's probably enough talk about that. Oh, I think I should pull this up make sure I finished reading this whole comment. Um, Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of it. That's probably why we didn't see the better halftime adjustments because they didn't adjust just at half because they felt pretty good about what they were doing defensively. And even when they came out, they give up the touchdown, but then they force a couple punts. It wasn't until the fourth quarter or end of the third quarter that Arizona started to get things working. And that happened when they found the middle of the field, like a lot of teams have found against uh, Colorado. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've said this before. I, I would like to see them try some different things. I also understand that they're trying to just do what they do and get all that nailed that down it's easy to say they definitely should change something after the loss though because obviously what they did didn't work um so yeah okay that's enough for today uh i will be back tomorrow on tuesday after the press conferences not sure who we're going to hear from uh, i think they were trying to get obviously mel will talk uh steven probably talks nate probably talks and then maybe tony brown and kj trujillo actually 
Um, still trying to get in touch with Daniel Arias because I want to talk to him about a couple of things, like his playing time. Uh, I don't need to dig into that. I'll tell you about it when it actually happens. But, uh, yeah, look forward to that tomorrow. I know I'm excited for it. Uh, also picking up my credential for the Oregon game tomorrow, so that's pretty cool. Uh, going to be a lot of work this weekend, but it'll be fun too, and I'm excited to bring all you guys with me in my computer. Okay, uh, actually getting out of here. Uh, I will see you tomorrow. Bye. I think I like my Colorado See you later, baby. baby. Colorado Army with soldiers like the Navy. Yeah. And voters where we stationed, patiently awaiting. Oh. When I hit the field, it's so hard to behave. Yeah. I'm Colorado swagging as the crowd do the wave. Look into my eyes, I can tell that you afraid. Uh-huh. Cause you know we finna hit you. Hit you. Hit you. Hit you. Hey. Hey. you on your own now. Why you watching the official? Yeah. You just better hope you make it to the next whistle. Yeah. And we